I'm a creature of habit. Most nights I brush my teeth, read my book, turn off the light, and climb into bed. Then I close my eyes and wait for the soothing sounds of the Phoenix Whaler to lull me to sleep. I live in Butte, Montana, a beautiful old copper mining city that's on the National Register of Historic Places. It's full of stately Victorian-era brick buildings and ornate mansions right next to ramshackle cottages. And it's in the most dramatic setting possible. The city itself is built right on the side of a steep hill in the northern Rocky Mountains and overlooks a mile-high valley ringed with gorgeous snowy peaks. Butte's like nowhere else. For one thing, most people from here have an insane amount of hometown pride. Honestly, it's my home. Plus, it's, it's the best place I've ever been. Butte's the last best place. No one loves Butte more than me, that's for sure. And if uh, you want to fight about it, step outside, mister! For a long time, Butte was the state's economic and political powerhouse because of one thing, copper. People here will tell you that Butte's mountain of metal built Montana. And no matter what curveballs are thrown at the mining city, it always bounces back. County archivist Ellen Crane's take is that, I think people in Montana are intrigued with this history. It's sexy. It's got everything. And I think people want to live that. The rich history is definitely a big draw. But elsewhere in Montana, Butte has developed quite a complicated reputation. Growing up in Whitefish, you just didn't go to Butte. What you were told is you just avoided, just to avoid Butte. Butte's a, a badass town. I don't know if I can say that, but people, that's what they think. It's a dirty mining city, but it's a good time. Just because we have no open container laws doesn't mean we're all drunken idiots. Butte's right off the interstate, an island of industrialization halfway between Yellowstone and Glacier National Parks. There are a ton of bars, and it is legal to drink openly on the street. So when a lot of people come, they come to party. The St. Patrick's Day festivities are legendary. Last year, I saw a drunk guy scale a wall, break into an abandoned building, and start pouring beer into another drunk dude's mouth who was standing two stories below, while the crowd cheered them on. Butte also hosts a three-day-long, entirely free outdoor folk music festival, which happens literally in my backyard. So Butte's really friendly and definitely knows how to have a good time. But it can also be pretty weird. Because after a while, you start to hear strange stories from people who grew up here about what Butte was like when they were kids. Like this one from Raylan Brandle. The entire Butte Hill was all yellow and orange and no vegetation grew on it. Big rainstorms would come and that water would rush down Montana Street and rush down Main Street and we'd have, you know, yellow uh, puddles everywhere. Or this tale from Pat Kaneen about crossing the local creek running through town. We would walk across the pipeline and when you your buddy would get out there on the pipe, you'd start throwing rocks at him, trying to knock him off. <laughs> so, so eventually, you know, we all got knocked off the pipe, and you'd end up in the creek, and about two days later, your shoelaces are gone, and about a week later, your shoes are gone because you fell in the creek, and it was full of acidic mine water. Last summer, when I told friends and family that I was leaving Missoula and moving to Butte, I got a lot of strong reactions. This is my mom. Butte, I think that feels like the end of the world. 
and I don't know what kind of effects it might have on your health, I don't think it's a good idea for you to be there. That's because outside of Montana, Butte's not the place you go to have a crazy weekend that you go home and brag to your friends about. A lot of people look at Butte and see America's most toxic mess. I'm Nora Sachs. This is Richest Hill, a podcast about one of America's most notorious Superfund sites from Montana Public Radio. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980, reminding listeners to think for themselves, but drink with others. SierraNevada.com. Technically, Butte is the epicenter of one of the biggest complex of Superfund sites in the entire country. Superfund is the federal program to clean up the nation's worst abandoned, contaminated waste sites. And this one stretches 120 miles, snaking down an entire river corridor in western Montana. The cleanup has been dragging on since the 1980s. Butte's so famous for its pollution, there was even a Daily Show segment on it a while back starring State Senator John Sesso. If you wanted a two-week vacation package in Butte, you know, one stop on your tour would be to see the Berkeley Pit. The Berkeley Pit. This 39 billion gallon body of toxic water is now a tourist attraction. That's right. The city has taken lemons and turned them into something that if you drank could kill you. The Daily Show is mocking the local Chamber of Commerce's attempts to cash in on an abandoned open pit copper mine by charging visitors $2 to go see it. The thing is, the Berkeley pit is really popular. The pit grew to become not only the largest truck-operated open pit mine in the United States, but also the richest copper mine. Unlike other open pit mines, it's not just a colossal hole in the ground. It's flooded with one of the largest contaminated bodies of water in the United States, and it's right on the edge of town. It's so big, you can see it from space. The Berkeley Pit is just the most glaring example of the extensive environmental damage all across Butte's landscape. And kids growing up here today are well aware of its claim to fame. Sometimes at sporting events, like other schools will start, like, we'll start chanting dirty water and everything. But That's still a thing. To be honest, I think our water's the best. I just kind of laugh whenever they like make fun of us, you know, knowing that it's not all true. And I just laugh. I just feel like it's original and like cool because like, I don't know, who else has a toxic lake? Joking seems like a good coping mechanism, but the pit is still a major ecological hazard. When birds land on it, they die. Thousands of migrating snow geese are dead after landing in toxic water in Montana. Authorities say several thousand snow geese flying south died after they landed in a contaminated pit in Montana. That was back in November 2016. And after it happened, the community here was outraged. They held an Irish-style wake called Hope for Snow Geese. Let their hearts like snow geese soar. Let them run in our pine meadows. Kids and adults sang songs, read poems, and said things like, Birds are a big part of everybody's lives, so they should not be dying from toxic pit water. As they hear the roaring thunder and glory in the things they saw. 
Believe it or not, this was actually the second snow geese catastrophe to give beauty a black eye. Hundreds of birds died from the same fate more than 20 years ago. Now, to prevent any more goose gates from happening, the two companies in charge of the Berkeley pit are pulling out all the stops. They assembled a council of waterfowl experts, and they've spent more than half a million dollars on a stockpile of state-of-the-art hazing technologies to scare birds away. That's why those noisy sirens are my evening lullaby. They're one of the many deterrents in use at the pit. There are also propane-powered sound cannons. If any birds do land, giant lasers, rifle shots, and specialized drones are used to chase them off. The hexacopter's my favorite. It looks like an airborne tarantula, but with sirens and flashing lights. And if all else fails, it's time to release the Vortex Ring avian deterrent. The VRAD is an air cannon the size of a pickup that can blast a sonic boom across the entire surface of the pit. The bird-eating Berkeley pit gets most of the attention, but it's only the head of the Superfund snake. The entire Butte Hill, where thousands of people, including me, live, is covered with 100-year-old mine waste that has nasty stuff like arsenic and lead in it. Some of it's been cleaned up by now, and some hasn't. And there are enough heavy metals around here to contaminate groundwater forever. Groundwater that eventually reaches the surface and flows into the Columbia River watershed, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. But Butte's so much more than ground zero for Superfund. Before it became notorious for the scars that a century of hard rock mining left behind, Butte was celebrated for its vast buried treasure. On the heels of Alexander Graham Bell inventing the telephone, and Edison, the light bulb, a network of wires began to weave its way across America. Thousands of miles of electric signals and humming power made possible by copper. And that copper comes from Butte, America. That's from a local distillery's promo video for one of their new liqueurs. It taps into the part of Butte's legacy that a lot of people around here are very proud of and nostalgic for. Local historian Dick Gibson says the amount of copper buried in Butte and the world's hunger for it created the longest, most valuable mining boom in U.S. history. Almost certainly somewhere between one-third and one-quarter of all the copper produced on planet Earth from about 1905 to 1917 came from Butte. Not Montana, but Butte. A third of all the copper in the world. Butte's mines were a magnet for immigrants from all across the globe. They came to literally carve out their jagged sliver of the American dream. For a time, Butte was a bustling metropolis on the frontier, the biggest and richest city west of the Mississippi River, between Chicago and San Francisco. They call it the richest hill on earth. Butte's seemingly infinite supply of copper was essential to America's success. It electrified the country and made the brass and the bullets that won World Wars I and II. If it was not for Butte and Anaconda, you and I might be given this, doing, doing this interview right now in Japanese or German. That's how important Butte, Montana is to, is, to, is to the nation. That's Fritz Daly, one of a number of folks here who feel that Butte sacrificed a lot and willingly 
not just for the country, but for the whole world. But then, after decades of boom times, the underground mines started shutting down, and in the early 1980s, the Berkeley pit followed and started filling up with toxic groundwater. With most of the treasure and riches gone, the community here has been struggling ever since. We've done our part. We've done our part to make the nation what it is. Now we need the rest of the nation to do their part and the federal government, the Environmental Protection Agency, to do their part and to their, do their legal duty, state of Montana, their legal and constitutional duty to make sure they clean this place in a responsible way, which to this point they have absolutely not done. He and others have watched as contaminated areas downstream and west of Butte are reclaimed one by one, and native trout return to the river. While there have been remediation efforts in Butte, a lot of locals look around and see dead zones on the hill, a sewer ditch where a creek used to be, and tons of buried mine tailings. They ask why the cleanup job here, at the headwaters, at the origin point for all the historic mine pollution, isn't done yet. We don't need people treating Butte as a stepchild out of Cinderella or something yet. The thing is that Butte deserves what the Constitution of the state of Montana says we deserve, and that is a clean and healthful environment, period. That's veteran environmental activist Mary Kay Craig. For more than 30 years, she and others have been fighting to get Butte cleaned up. But as the years go by and the cleanup stalls out, to some, Superfund seems like a tangled knot of trust and betrayal. Frustration and anger keep mounting. Here's David McCumber, the editor of the local newspaper, speaking at a rally in 2017. It looks to me like some of the parties in this long-running Superfund cleanup effort here may have been operating on some incorrect assumptions. Perhaps they've been assuming this waste-in-place cleanup is good enough for Butte. Well, we're here tonight to tell them no. Say it with me, no. Leaving the waste in the ground, the contamination in our water, and a sacrifice zone in the middle of our town is not good enough for Butte. A lot of folks here don't just see the mistakes of the past. They see potential for a renaissance. That's the kind of legacy we need to start living is that, yes, Butte has an environmental disaster, but we know how to clean it up. When those people come here, they should see something spectacular. Butte's a big damn deal. You know, yeah, Missoula is amazing. Bozeman's great. Bozeman's fantastic. But Butte is a big damn deal. That was Raylan Brandel, sister Mary Jo McDonald, and Courtney and John McKee. Those who believe Butte can only reach its full potential once the Superfund cleanup is finally in the rearview mirror believe they may have found an unlikely new ally. Hello, Montana. This is going to be a lot of fun. Thank you. It'll be a lot of fun. President Trump's Environmental Protection Agency named Superfund as one of its top priorities. And out of more than 1,300 Superfund sites, the EPA targeted Butte for, quote, immediate and intense attention. From the Rocky Mountains to the Great Plains, the people of Montana love our country, love our country so much. That means it put key players in the cleanup under strong legal pressure. And right now, Butte is on the verge of a final Superfund deal that EPA promises will clean up the mining city once and for all by 2024. 
When it comes to Superfund, Butte's had a lot of false starts. But there are signs that this could be Butte's big year. Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul. I fell hard for this gritty, spunky town the moment I attended that wake for snow geese. And I started to have a lot of questions about this precarious arrangement. Like, how did we get here? What happens next? And who gets to decide? So last summer, I packed up my truck and moved into a little apartment on Copper Street to find out. Next time on Richest Hill, what did it take to get Butte's copper out of the ground? And where did it all come from in the first place? I knew what my future held for me. I knew what I wanted to do. And that was to be an underground miner. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. That poem was Clark Grant reading Hope is the Thing with Feathers by Emily Dickinson at the Wake for Snow Geese. Richest Hill is a production of Montana Public Radio. Nora Sachs is our host and reporter. I'm Nick Mott, producer. Eric Whitney is our executive producer. Josh Burnham is our digital editor. Our theme music is by Dublin Gulch and other music composed and performed by Jonas Benetta and Oren Pearson. Special thanks to NPR's Story Lab. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Family owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Reminding listeners to think for themselves, but drink with others. SierraNevada.com